We are going to read our text for the day, our scripture. It's going to be Genesis chapter 25, verses 19 through 28. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. The two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. All right, well, we dove into the deep end this morning, huh? Thank you to Jane uh, for leading us in worship and for sharing a little bit of her story. And then thank you to Todd as well for uh, sharing that song with us. And I think both of those things help lead into our conversation this morning in the book of Genesis. As we continue this series, we are going to take a look at some stuff that we don't really like to talk about, but all of us experience at some level. And so we're going to get to that in just a moment. But before we do... I want to put in my sort of personal plug for the ministry fair. So we're going to transition here for a minute, and then we'll get back to Genesis. So just kind of hang with me for a moment. So a couple of things about the fair, which is going to be, like David said, after the morning services the next two Sundays. There's a lot of different ways to serve here at Regen, but we're going to be focusing at that fair on the Sunday morning opportunities. And so I want to talk just a little bit about serving and then what those opportunities are and then again we'll get back to the task at hand so for us serving is not a duty it's part of the mission of what it means to be a follower of jesus and what it means to be a part of a church community and for our particular church here we have named our mission from scripture this old testament call to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly And I love that because I think it gives some legs and some life to this idea of shalom. We've talked a lot about shalom in the Genesis series. And I think one of the ways that it looks in real life is doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly. And again, there's a whole bunch of ways to do this. Probably as many ways as there are people in this room. But in particular, we are putting some opportunities in front of you the next two weeks that have to do with Sunday morning. Because for us, Sunday morning is critical to this mission of inviting people to be a part of that with us, of doing justice, loving mercy, walking humbly together. So our Sunday morning teams are critical, mission critical to making that happen. And many of you are already serving on those teams and we're really grateful for that. But as new folks get connected, And as our ministries grow, it's always great to make more opportunities for people to join in on that. So 
primarily the fear is going to be for those of you who are not currently serving on a team and are interested in what that looks like. And there's three teams that make what happened here on Sunday morning happen. And so these are the teams. First is our production team. This is a great team to be on if you are more of a behind-the-scenes person. This involves everything that really happens in here on a Sunday morning from setting up the communion to running the slides and running the sound. Those are a couple of the critical elements. And again, if you're a behind-the-scenes person, if you are a technical person, if you would like to be a technical person, this would be a great team to be a part of. Our hospitality team is sort of in charge of everything that happens outside of the sanctuary, and primarily this is our greeters who are out front, and then the cafe team that serves our delicious coffee every Sunday morning. And so this is more of an extroverted team. If you like people, if you like high fives and hugs, if you like coffee, if you like washing dishes, this would be a great team for you to be a part of. And then last but definitely not least, there is our children's ministry team. And this team is the best one to be a part of for a couple of reasons. Number one, you get a donut. That's great, right? (laughs) But even more exciting than that, you get to work with Grace Cooper, who is the best human being ever. And if you haven't had the chance, yeah, some of you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't had the chance to meet her, you need to meet her. And she is wonderful to work with. She'll train you, give you all the tools that you need to be successful, and you will have fun with our kids. I can guarantee that much. It will not be a boring Sunday. All right, so there you go. Those are the three teams that we're highlighting. I just wanted to put that out there to kind of get that into your mind as we head into those next couple of weeks. These next two Sundays will be a chance to meet people who are serving on those teams, ask some questions, and even sign up for the next quarter if you're ready to do that. That quarter is going to run September, October, and November. All right, so enough about the ministry fair. Let's pray, and then we will get back into the book of Genesis. So pray with me. Father, thank you so much for this church and for all of the incredible ways that people here take ownership and serve. What an example many folks here are of what it looks like to join in and to be part of your mission and purpose for the church. We do pray, God, that you would expand and strengthen some of our teams, and we look forward to bringing more people into the fold and working together, rolling up our sleeves together to answer this call to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly. We pray now as we turn our attention to your word and to a story that is heavy in a lot of ways, God, that you would make it an encouragement to us, that you would speak to us today through your word, help us to be still now for a moment and to be receptive to what it is that you want to say to us, And help us to take whatever step it is we need to take this morning as we move towards greater healing in our lives. We pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. All right, the comedian George Burns said, Happiness is having a large, loving, caring, close-knit family in another city. (laughs) Anybody relate to that one? You may have a great family, you may have grown up in a really healthy family, maybe you grew up in the opposite of that, a totally dysfunctional family, but whatever your experience of family has been, even the best families leave us with some wounds, and so some of the most difficult heavy lifting that we do in life is naming and dealing with our family baggage. In my family of origin, my two grandfathers cast a pretty large shadow over our family story, and there's a lot of similarities in their stories, and there's some significant differences. So both were born 
in the United States. They were the first generation to be born in the U.S. They were born in the early 30s, right as the Depression was starting, and both experienced significant tragedy at a very young age. My great-grandfather, Butchery, by all accounts, was not a very good man, and he was physically abusive to my grandfather and to my great-grandmother, and then the best we know and understand, he pretty much just disappeared back to France at that point. My grandfather on my mom's side lost his mom to an illness when he was in his early teens. And so that's some of the commonalities that they have. Their stories go in very different directions at that point. After his mom died, my grandfather Enlin went, what I would just say, all in on the power of positive thinking. His 85th birthday was yesterday. He's still one of the most upbeat people you will ever meet. My other grandfather, though, went in pretty much the exact opposite direction. He became a victim. And the world was always out to get him. There was always some sort of conspiracy working against his success. Someone was always trying to get his money. And that victim mentality plagued him all the way to the point where he took his own life. Now, for me personally, my life experience has been very, very different than theirs. And yet, those two attitudes, those two perspectives on the world are there. They're in me. And I can go back and forth between that sort of pessimistic victim mentality and then that kind of upbeat, everything's going to be fine attitude. And of course, that's just the tip of the iceberg, right, when it comes to my particular family stuff. Then on top of all that, I'm married to Amy, and she's got her own set of family stuff. And so then there's this thing in marriage where you have to kind of help each other work through that together. And the point of all of this is to simply say, no matter how hard you try, you cannot escape your family baggage. You cannot run away from your family. You cannot get away from the impact that your family has on you. And for a lot of us, our experience of family, if we're really honest, leaves us in a place where we're not super excited about the idea of family. But whatever our experience is, might be, family has always been critical to God's plans for his creation. We were created to function best in the context of a family. Remember, we saw this back in Genesis 1 and 2. It's not good for man to be alone, right? And even after creation rebelled, families continue to stay central to God's plans. We saw this over the last two weeks. When God begins his plan for the redemption of his creation, he starts with a family. And this family, he says, will be a blessing to all the individuals of the world. No, to all the other families in the world. So today, we're going to see kind of the next couple of generations of this family, and we're going to learn that even though this family is so vital to what God is doing in his work of redemption, this family is just as jacked up as any of ours. So let's get into it. Verse 19 of chapter 25 introduces us to a new toledot. Remember this word toledot means generations, and it's one of the critical markers of the book of Genesis. It's a signal that something new is coming. We're now in the Toledot of Isaac. Remember, Isaac is Abraham's long-awaited, long-promised son, the fulfillment of this original promise that God gave to Abraham. So now we're into Isaac's family story. Isaac's wife, Rebecca, is barren, much like Isaac's mother was. So Isaac prays on behalf of his wife. God responds to his prayer. Rebecca is, in fact, able 
to conceive. But this pregnancy is not an easy one for her. And it turns out that she's having twins. And then we're even told that there's this ongoing conflict. And there will be ongoing conflict between these twins. It starts in the womb. God himself says, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. Conflict starts in the womb. It continues during birth when the first twin is born and the second is right there hanging on to his heel <laughs> as he comes out. And then there's this process of naming the boys and their names are very interesting because they really foreshadow their destinies in many ways. Names are important all throughout Scripture. We've seen this to be true in the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve's name are significant. Cain and Abel's names were significant. God changes the names of Abram and Sarai to Abraham and Sarah as a way to establish their new identity as patriarchs of this family. A name is never just a name. It's a source of identity. And even beyond that, it's about their calling and their purpose. Parents, you know the challenge at times of naming kids, if you've been through that process. I don't know what it was like for you. Maybe it was agonizing. Maybe there were big fights. Maybe it was fairly easy. I don't know what it's like. But there's something powerful about naming a child, right? Because this name is going to be with them for their whole life. And when this baby comes out, it doesn't have a name. And then you say, it's going to be this. And that is who that child will be. For the rest of its life. For us, that process, I would say, was actually easy and difficult. That's kind of an odd way to say it, but it's sort of true. We had some good options, but then there's the process of trying to find, you know, the right combination of first name and middle name, and you kind of go through all this stuff. This is how we did it. A little story about our kids' names. Our kids both have Spanish names. We wanted their names to reflect that part of their heritage that kind of gets lost in having a very French last name. So that was sort of criteria number one. But deeper than that, more important to us than even that, was we wanted their names to represent an aspect of God's nature. And we wanted that, you know, hopefully, as they grow and mature, they are able to reflect this in their character. So our oldest daughter, her name is Marina Grace. Marina is Spanish for from the sea or of the sea. And her name is sort of shorthand for this idea of an ocean of grace, right? This ocean of grace that God extends to us and then our son is named Cruz Isaac Cruz is Spanish for cross and his name is meant to represent God's sacrificial substitutionary love for us and again our hope you know who knows how all that will turn out right but our hope is that as they grow and mature those truths of their names are reflected in who they are names are important right to creating identity and it's true for Esau and for Jacob. Esau is the elder twin. He comes out first and his name is primarily meant to reflect the color of his hair and so his name works at this very literal level but then there's also the symbolic meaning right. Red represents things like adventure and violence, anger and passion. All of those things are going to be true of Esau's life. And then Jacob is a fascinating study in names. His name means deceiver or trickster. And as we'll see here in a moment, this is an identity that he will dive into deeply. This identity of being a deceiver. 
Now, verse 27 drives home just how different these boys are. As they grow up, Esau becomes a hunter and an outdoorsman. Again, sort of that adventure and passion reflected in his name. Jacob is kind of the nerd. Hangs out at home, playing video games in the tent all day. And then, verse 28, here we begin to see some of the problems in this family. Isaac, we're told, loved Esau. Isaac likes steak, apparently. And so Esau provided him with meat. And so he loved him, but Rebecca loved Jacob. Now, you don't need to be a marriage and family therapist to go, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, there's some problems here, right, in this scenario. And as we'll see, this leads to all kinds of conflict and dysfunction. It gets started right away here at the ending of this chapter. So look at verse 29 with me. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that stew because I'm exhausted. And Jacob said, sell me your birthright right now, like you do. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? And so Jacob said, all right, swear to me then. And so Esau swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and didn't die. (laughs) And went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So again, just a little story here that gives us tremendous insight into these two men, their characters. Esau, sensual, impetuous, and in this particular story, incredibly short-sighted, right? It's impossible to believe that he would give up something so important for a bowl of stew. Now, tacos, maybe I could understand, but, (laughs) but not stew, A birthright for the firstborn son involved inheriting a good portion, if not the entirety of the father's stuff. All the land, all the animals, all the accumulated wealth. Esau kisses that goodbye for this bowl of soup because he's tired. Jacob, ever so shrewd, takes full advantage of his brother's foolishness and he begins to turn the tables in their sibling rivalry very much in his favor. Just how much we'll see here in chapter 26. Here the action turns back to Isaac and again I wish I had more time to get into this but it's fascinating how Isaac's story parallels Abraham's. If you've missed the last two weeks we talked about Abraham over the last two weeks you can go back and listen or watch that if you go to our webpage. But there's all kinds of parallels between their stories. It begins in verse 1. There's a famine in the land, just like Abraham faced a famine. Isaac goes to another authority looking for help, just like Abraham went looking for help. Isaac lies about his wife, saying Rebekah is his sister, just like his father did two times in Abraham's story. In the middle of all this, God comes and promises Isaac the same exact thing he promised Abraham. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a blessing. You are going to have descendants more numerous than the stars in the sky. All these amazing things right in the middle of Isaac's sort of dysfunction and lack of faith. The point of all this, though, comes in verses 12 and 13. This shows us just how much Isaac prospers. Just like his father, who throws his wife under the bus and lies about things and then prospers, same thing happens to Isaac. Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. (laughs) In other words, 
Esau's decision to give up his birthright is looking very, very foolish, right? Now, near the end of chapter 26, we're told that Esau makes another foolish decision, and you have to wonder how much of this is motivated by what he sees going on in his family. He realizes what he's given up. He sees how much his father's accumulating and what is now going to go to his brother. And so he takes two, not one, but two foreign wives, wives who, look at verse 35, made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Again, you don't have to be an expert in family dynamics to see what's going on here. My parents never gave me much dating advice. My dad is sort of famous for this really brief little quip of advice that whenever this topic would come up, he would just look at me and say, choose well. <laughs> but dad, what about, what about this? And I don't know about this girl. I'm having all these questions and ah, choose well. Pretty aggravating, but also if you think about it, it's really good advice, right? <laughs> Esau does not choose well, and it has a dramatic effect on his family, obviously. But there's a little bit more to this than just you know, part of the storytelling here. This is a teachable moment for the people of Israel. Remember that Moses is the author of this book. He's writing to the people of Israel who had been in slavery for 400 years, and this is the people who are the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. They've been in slavery for 400 years. They've kind of lost this sense of who they are and what they're all about, and so this book, God is using this book to sort of rebuild that identity, and part of that identity formation will involve not taking wives from other nations. Moses will say in the book of Deuteronomy, you shall not intermarry with them, them being the people of the land that they're about to walk into, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. In other words, God says, choose well. And Esau is an example of what not to do. And if you do this, not only is it going to cause problems for you and your relationship with me, it's going to cause problems even in your own family. So all of this leads us to the climactic scene where this family's dysfunction is on full display. So we're now looking at chapter 27. At the beginning of chapter 27, Isaac asks Esau to make him his favorite meal. And then after eating that meal together, he will bless Esau. He will give Esau his deserved firstborn blessing. Rebekah overhears this and starts hatching an alternative plot. She gets together with Jacob and says, hey, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to cook the food. I'm going to make the meal. You're going to get dressed up like your brother. And then you're going to go in and you're going to steal the blessing. Jacob's like, hey, wait a minute. I'm not as hairy as my brother. So they put goat skins on him. Esau must have been a hairy dude, right? <laughs> they put these goat skins on him to try to approximate Esau's hairiness. And so while Esau is out hunting, Jacob and Rebekah execute the plan. Jacob sneaks in with his mom's food to receive his brother's deserved blessing. And there's this really, I think it's a poignant moment in this story. You can kind of blast right past it if you're reading through it. But this demonstrates just how deeply lost Jacob is. How deep his identity as a deceiver has become. Look at verse 19. Isaac senses that someone has come into the room. At this point in his life, Isaac's sight is failing him. Senses someone has come in, asks who's there, and Jacob says, I am Esau. 
which obviously is part of the trick, but I think, again, it's also this moment of just showing us how much Jacob had adopted the role of deceiver. He's completely adopted this false identity. Now, somehow, this works. Isaac, he must have been, like, really blind, right? I mean, how did you fall for this trick? (laughs) But Isaac gives Jacob Esau's blessing. And then Esau, not too long after all this, comes in with his food, and he and his dad realize, oh, man, we got played. Your brother came deceitfully, and he's taken away your blessing. And Esau said, is he not rightfully named Jacob? For he's cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Not surprisingly, this scene ends with Esau promising to kill Jacob. <laughs> but Rebecca, who's kind of like the shadow, she's like always there somehow lurking and hearing everything that's going on. Rebecca hears of it and decides to protect Jacob by sending him away, once again looking out you know, for her favorite son. And then before Jacob leaves, Isaac blesses him one more time, and this is an important moment because this blessing ensures that the Abrahamic promise is now on Jacob. The tables have completely turned from Esau to Jacob. And then Esau, in a classic soap opera move, goes out and marries one of Ishmael's daughters. Remember, Ishmael is Isaac's half-brother, and it's just kind of like a big, you know what, screw you parents. (laughs) I'm going to go do this. Leo Tolstoy wrote, All happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Part of the truth of that particular statement is that what makes a family a family is its particular brand of dysfunction, right? (laughs) But in this story, we see some things, at least a handful of things, that are, I think, pretty common to what happens in families and pretty common to the wounds that we all carry with us from family dynamics that we've experienced. So here are a couple of the things that we see in this story. First, there's the issue of favoritism, right? Isaac favored Esau, Rebekah favored Jacob, and we've seen how this plays out. We've seen the damage that it causes, but I wanted to talk about a couple of sort of residual effects of favoritism that we sometimes skip over. So the first thing is this. Married couples who have kids, you need to hear this. Your kids need to see you working together as a team, and part of the issue of this favoritism is not just that one child is favored or another. It's that it pits Rebekah against Isaac. It undermines their teamwork, their sense of being a team together. Now, this is not to say that there aren't, you know, certain things that one parent does better than the other or ways that you bond with your kids individually. All of that is good and needs to happen. But fundamentally, your kids need to see you working together, being on the same page, working as a team. Then there's this other side of favoritism. And I ran into this a lot when I was doing work with college students. And it's this dynamic that happens when one child's negative behavior dominates the family. And what I would often encounter was one of the other siblings in one of those families where there was a kid who, again, acted out, got into a lot of trouble. And so the parents gave that particular child a lot of time and attention. And then this other child adopted the sort of like, I'll be the good kid and I'll get straight A's and I'll fly under the radar and no one will pay attention to me. I'll just kind of do my own thing. And then they got to college, and they just started to fall apart in all kinds of different ways. 
So again, parents, you need to hear this. If you have a child whose behavior requires lots of extra attention, that's okay, but you must find ways to pour into the other children in your family. Otherwise, it's a form of favoritism, and it can lead to an incredible amount of anger in the child that's not getting your full level of attention. So there's the issue of favoritism. There's also the issue of manipulation. Again, we see this all over this family's story. Everybody's kind of manipulating everybody in this family. The big moment of manipulation is obviously Jacob and Rebekah pulling the wool literally over Isaac's eyes. Manipulation takes on all kinds of forms, though. Sort of at a lighter level, there's cutting words and subtle jabs and sarcastic comments, but we all know that it can be much, much worse, right? Manipulation can be aggressive and even abusive. And again, whatever form it might take, I think manipulation is probably the source of the majority of the wounds that we carry from our family. Finally, we see in the story passive-aggressive revenge. Esau plots aggressive revenge when he says, I'm going to kill my brother. But that's not the only thing that he does, right? That's not his only tactic, this taking of another wife, especially the wife from Ishmael's family. This is a huge passive-aggressive moment that is entirely designed to wound his parents where he knows it's going to hurt them the most. Again, you don't need me to tell you that revenge marriage is a bad idea. (laughs) Hopefully that's not an issue for us. But if you've been in a family, you know that family oftentimes knows the spot it hurts the most, right? And they know how to hit you where it hurts. And again, a lot of us are walking around with those kinds of wounds. Now, the big question here is, okay, (laughs) that family was messed up. What do we do about that? What's the good news here? What do we do with our family junk? Is there any hope in this particular story? Well, here's the first thing that we need to see and to understand. No matter how dysfunctional Abraham's family gets, and believe it or not, this is only the beginning. It actually gets much worse from here. But no matter how dysfunctional this family becomes, God's big plan of redemption is not stopped. It continues to move forward. That promise in Genesis 12 that through this family all the families of the earth shall be blessed, that promise is not thwarted by manipulation or parental favoritism or passive-aggressive revenge. None of their dysfunction stops God's plans from moving forward. Despite all of this mess, Abraham's family is still blessed and it will still be a blessing because God's grace is bigger than our mess. It is always bigger than our mess. In Ephesians, we read that in him we have redemption through his blood. This is talking about Jesus, of course. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. There's a couple of key words in this verse. And I think the big one is that word forgiveness. The only power strong enough to overcome the effects of sin and death is God's grace, which is demonstrated by the forgiveness of sins. Through Jesus' death on a cross, a death that, of course, leads 
to resurrection leads to new life. And so in the same way that the gospel works on this sort of cosmic big picture level, it also works on a personal individual level as well. To find healing from our stuff, especially our family stuff, we have to work through this process. This process of death leading to resurrection. We have to let the gospel, the good news of Jesus, transform us. And we have to do the hard work of forgiveness. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. And that can kind of sound like Jesus is creating a hoop that we have to jump through, but that's not what this is about at all. What Jesus is saying is that in order to be free from all of the stuff that we carry, you must forgive it. Just like God forgives us. Without being able to do that, it becomes almost impossible to receive and understand God's forgiveness for us. So to be free from it, you have to forgive it. And here's the thing. You have to forgive real, actual people. (laughs) And that is an incredibly difficult thing to do, right? I don't mean to sugarcoat this or try to make this sound like this is an easy shortcut to a great, happy, pain-free life. Tim Keller has spoken to this far more eloquently than I can, so listen to his words here. I think this is so important for us to hear. Cycles of reaction and retaliation can go on for years. An evil has been done to you, yes, but when you try to get payment through revenge, the evil does not disappear. Instead, it spreads, and it spreads most tragically of all into you and your own character. There is another option, however. You can forgive. Forgiveness means refusing to make them pay for what they did. To refrain from lashing out at someone when you want to do so with all your being is agony. It is a form of suffering. You are absorbing the debt, taking the cost of it completely on yourself instead of taking it out on the other person, and it hurts terribly. Many people would say it feels like a kind of death. Everyone who forgives great evil goes through a death and experiences nails, blood, sweat, and tears. But, Keller says, it is a death that will lead to resurrection. Should it surprise us that when God determined to forgive us rather than punish us, he went to the cross. On the cross, we see God doing visibly and cosmically what every human being must do to forgive someone, though on an infinitely greater scale. God, he writes, did not inflict his pain on someone else, but rather on the cross absorbed the pain, the violence, and the evil of the world onto himself. There was a debt to be paid. God himself paid it. There was a penalty to be borne. God himself bore it. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus. God's sacrificial absorption of our sin, his forgiveness of us, is the power that overcomes sin and death and dysfunction so that we can flourish again. But to step into that flourishing, we must forgive others. We must forgive the people who have wounded us. Even though it's hard, even though it is painful, we have to die that death. We have to work through it. It may take a long time. 
but you must do the work to experience the resurrection, the new life that is on the other side of forgiveness. Let me say it again. Grace is the only power strong enough to overcome our mess. So the question for us this morning is pretty simple. Who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to forgive? Let's pray. Father, in a strange way, it is encouraging to look into Scripture and to see the realness of the people there. To see that they went through, they struggled with, they hurt each other in all the same ways that we do. And you continue to work through people. You continue to move your redemption plan forward in spite of us. And you continually offer us grace. God, some of us have inflicted deep wounds on other people. Some of us have been inflicted with wounds. We all carry stuff from our families in particular. So I pray this morning, Father, for each and every one of us that there would be a step towards healing taken this morning, a step towards forgiveness, that we would begin to be free of some of that baggage, some of that junk. As we get to know you better, as we experience the truth of the gospel, as that gets into our hearts and brings transformation, may we be people who forgive others, even though it's hard, even though it is a kind of death, God. We must do it. We want to do it so that we can experience the full life, the flourishing that you offer. I pray for those who are in this room who maybe haven't trusted you yet, God, that they would trust you this morning and that that would be the beginning of their journey of experiencing forgiveness, not just for themselves, but forgiveness of others as well. We pray all of this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.